don't know what that word stirs for you, a steward or stewardship. Um, sometimes that word carries baggage. Sometimes it just stirs things in us. Uh, maybe it makes us think of money or like, oh, they're going to ask me to do more or give more, um, all those sorts of things. Or maybe it's like, yeah, I'm going to duck out for the next few weeks and, and I'll be back. <laughs> I want to say that it's a matter of the heart. And that's what the Lord wants. He wants our hearts. I know often I see my own heart that sometimes acts like a rebel and wants to rule my own world. <laughs> and the Lord wants a heart. So, and as I thought about stewardship and the question of uh, what does it mean to be a steward, I, I thought, you know, I, I feel like I'm a kind of simple kind of guy. And I, like to, I like things to be simple for me to understand them. And so I like to go back to the beginning of things to understand where it all started. And so that's where we're going to go, back to the beginning. The first uh, example or instance of stewardship, where it was established, Genesis 2.15. Yeah, it's one, one verse. And yeah, in the first service, I managed to make one verse a 30-minute sermon, but we'll bear with me. We'll get there. But that question of what does it mean to be a steward, I think as I sat in this this week, I realized that it may be one of, the, one of the pivotal life questions. And I don't think I'm overstating that because I think it has a lot to do with purpose and the human pursuit of purpose. So we'll get there, but let me put this uh, one verse before us and then we'll explore it together. Genesis 2.15, this is God's inerrant and infallible word. It says, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The word of the Lord. Go with me in prayer as we ask the Lord to lead us in this time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you spoke, that you didn't leave us to ourselves here in this, your world, but you entered in, you spoke, and ultimately you spoke through your son. Lord, I pray that you would speak now through a broken vessel has been saved by grace alone. Would I decrease, would you increase? We pray for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So Harold Abrams, Madonna, Rocky Balboa, Robert Downey Jr., Tom Brady. What do they all have in common? Well, the same thing that all human beings actually have in common, but they've been, they're out there in the spotlight and they're more honest and explicit about the fact that all humans are endeavoring to have purpose. Uh, they've, they've just been honest about it. So Harold Abrams, he was the uh, gold medal 100 meter uh, sprint gold medalist in 1924. Also, he's portrayed in the movie Chariots of Fire. He's sort of kind of playing opposite uh, Eric Little. So if you've seen that movie, you know who I'm talking about, but I'll, I'll just quote him from the movie at least how he's portrayed in the movie he's talking with a mutual friend of theirs at one point in the movie and he's speaking to this friend and says that uh, your secret is contentment I'm 24 and I've never known it I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing and a little bit later in the movie he talks about uh, he's about to go out to run this race and he says I'll raise my eyes and look down the corridor four feet wide with Ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? All right, Madonna. 
What does she say? Well, it says, all of, my, all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. Then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of it again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. All right? Guys, Rocky Balboa, the night before the big fight against Creed, he's talking to Adrian and he says this, All I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go the distance, you see, then that bell rings and I'm still standing and I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. Somebody. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. says, mediocrity is my biggest fear. I'm not afraid of total failure because I don't think that'll happen. I'm, afraid of, but I'm not afraid of success because that beats failure. It's being in the middle that scares me. All right, finally, Tom Brady, who, who retired. No, 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 wait, he didn't. He, he came back again. Uh, five years into his career, just five years into his career, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes, and, and, and the guy interviewing him said, what do you fear most? And he said, the end of my career. And he said this about that. He said, you know, you, when you're, he's talking about when he's in his career. He said, you've got something you're trying to accomplish. And when that's done, you don't have 80,000 people screaming your name. You know, what's, what's it going to be? What is it going to be? What about us? What's that purpose? Who am I? Why am I here? You know, these famous people, I think we can just appreciate them because they're just being honest about the human struggle. <laughs> we can be thankful for that. But so many of us, like them, we find ourselves in this neurotic loop of trying to fabricate our own self-worth. We find ourselves in this frantic state of trying to establish our own purpose. But what if, what if, it's already been given. What if our purpose is something we didn't have to determine or establish or defend or chase after, never really knowing if we got it right? What if it's given to us by our creator? What if we remembered that we are all stewards? What would that change? What would that change for us? I, I think it, it changes everything. And I think that's not just a once-and-done, figured-it-out type of thing. I think that's a daily battle for us to go back to the beginning of what we were here for. It changes everything. Harold Abrams doesn't have to justify his existence. Madonna doesn't have to prove she's somebody. Rocky Balboa doesn't have to prove he's not a bum. Robert Downey Jr. doesn't have to fear mediocrity. And Tom Brady doesn't have to fear the end of his career. And neither do we have to fear those things. We don't have to fear those things because we can sit, sit in the contentment of our identity as a steward. Because it's not my kingdom of self that I'm building, even though I so often fall back into that way of thinking. I've got to build. I've got to make myself somebody. I've got to build my kingdom because nobody else is doing that. And then we remember that we're building someone else's kingdom. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know, Michael, I don't really struggle with this stuff. I, what's the big deal? I, I go to work, I do my stuff, I got my things that I manage, and 
maybe, maybe you should struggle with this if you don't. Maybe you haven't explored your fears enough. Maybe you haven't explored what makes you anxious or your reasons for doing what you do. It has to do with our hearts. Finding our purpose is, is at the core of what it means to be human. We want purpose. And the game changer is understanding that we don't have to find it, but we receive it. So then what does it mean to be a steward? Well, I think it comes down out of this verse to the task of a steward and the heart of a steward. Let's talk about the, the task of a steward. <clears throat> Quite simply, a steward is one who's put in charge of someone else's possessions, someone else's possessions to take care of them. Done. Good. Let's go home. <laughs> what does that mean, though? What, how do we do that? How do we do that well? Well, I mean, God, God made it. He planted this garden that he put Adam in. He, he made it. He made everything. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We, we, I think I own land. I actually have my name is on the deed for some land. I own land. I think I own it. <laughs> on paper, I own it. I think I own my house. I think I own my car. You know, there's a practical way to think about this, too. Even if you don't have a worldview that includes a creator God. I have a mortgage on my home. Probably most of you have a mortgage on your home, right? Um, that means the bank actually owns my house. And they're letting me live there <laughs> and take care of it. Well, that actually helps. I and mean, maybe it does. I don't know if it helps you or not to think about it that way. But it frees us up. You know, God said, I made this place. But he's not a banker. He's a good God. He says, this is my stuff. But I want you to live here. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to take care of it. I want you to be placed in a, in a place of delight. That's what the word Eden means. Place of delight in my presence. I give you everything you need. Will you take care of it? So he puts the man in the garden to work and keep. Those two words. Let's explore that a little bit. I think that will help us understand the task of a steward. Uh, who feels like work is a curse? Oh, we got, I got one hand. I know we're sort of too, like, uh, Presbyterian to go, amen. Why does, it, why does it feel like a curse? I think it's frustrating. It feels unproductive. It feels like we try to do things and everything's coming, at, coming against what we're trying to accomplish, whatever that is. I don't, I don't just mean like the job that you go to, certainly that's included, but just work, getting stuff done, accomplishing things. You know, maybe, uh, maybe the young moms here can identify with this best, I don't know, like you clean up your kid's room and then by the afternoon it's trashed again and you're like, why do I even try? <laughs> You know, why do I eat shit? You know, this diaper got pooped in again, and there's going to be another one later, and oh, what am I doing? This is, feels frustrating. We feel like we're repeating a series of meaningless tasks, or so-called meaningless tasks, but are they meaningless? You know who Sisyphus is? I guess I said his name right, but he's a, mytholo a, a, a person of uh, Greek mythology, and he supposedly cheated death twice and so his punishment was in Hades he was given the task the job of getting this rock up this hill right but except the the rock was enchanted to at the last minute at, right before he gets to the top to move out of reach and roll back down the hill so he's got to go back and push it back up the hill again and he does this endlessly for eternity 
and I think that's basically communicating that we were made for meaningful work. There's a, actually a real-life illustration of this, too. The, one of the uh, Nazi Germany concentration camps, the prisoners there were put to work in a factory that was supporting the German war machine. So they had, they had work. But then at some point, the, this factory was bombed by the Allies. And so the, uh, those running this concentration camp decided to, ta- to take on this human experiment of, let's have them take the debris from here and move it over here today. And the next day, they had them take the debris and move it back over here the next day and back and forth and back and forth. And like the whole camp lost their minds. They went mad. It was meaningless work. <clears throat> what work do you have that feels meaningless or ordinary or boring or, or overlooked? There's two ways to give work meaning. We can give it meaning, or someone outside of us can give it meaning. How, what's, the, what's the problem with us trying to give our work meaning? What could be the problem there? How much is enough? How good is good enough? Um, if my work is about me needing to establish its own meaning or my purpose or my worth, like all the folks who were so honest at the beginning that I talked about, if, if it's down to that, then everything or everyone that comes along my path has either got to serve that goal of making me somebody or they're a threat to that. Right? Have you ever felt that moment of like, I've, just, I've got so much to do right now, I can't, I can't deal with this person that's right here in front of me. And so maybe we dismiss an opportunity that was for stewardship with an interaction or something that seemed like a, a useless task that, that needed to be done. We're like, I got to do so much over here. I don't know about y'all, but I find myself doing that. I dismiss opportunities that with another person, God, with my own kids sometimes. And I miss being a steward. And so then work, tasks, purpose feels stress-filled when it's about us needing to establish that, our own purpose. It's anxiety-inducing. It's not satisfying when we lose sight of being a steward. We begin to say things like, ah, I don't deserve this. I deserve that promotion. This, I, don't, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm, I'm done with changing poopy diapers or <laughs> Whatever that may be, and certainly we get to those places. But what if our work is given meaning by God? What if you could know that the God of the universe says, I see you. I see you when you're changing that poopy diaper five times a day. I see you when you continue to do that overlooked task at work that no one's noticing. I see you showing up in my world and stewarding my things again and again and again. Uh, Stephen Spanger, maybe you know that name. He's one of our uh, missionary church planters in Germany. I got to go see him a few years back, and something he said just always stuck with me. I've probably said it here up here before, but it, it just so applies. Because he's in a, a post-Christian Western European country trying to plant a church. And it's hard and it's lonely and it's sometimes just discouraging. And he says, Michael, there's so many times where I just feel discouraged. And I'm like, what am I even doing? But he says, but I keep showing up for work. (laughs) 
I wake up and I show up for work, trusting that God's doing it, trusting that God's going to do it, and I'm a steward then. It's not down to him. He's like, it's not down to me to, to make this happen. I show up for work. That applies in so many ways, whether it be an actual job that you show up at at work every day and you clock in and clock out, or showing up as a parent, or showing up to manage uh, possessions, things that you own. Maybe we can see it as a steward who keeps showing up at work. There's, there's more here because seeing ourselves as stewards, I think, actually dignifies all work. Do we have types of work that we sort of see as menial or not as uh, big or contributing to society? I mean, in our Western culture, we sort of hold certain careers up as like, that's the, man, if I could a, a get to one of those, then I'm really doing something. And I'm really contributing to the world. Or maybe we just see stewardship as like only when I'm doing church work. I mean, certainly that's a part of stewardship. But I find myself in conversations like this sometimes uh, where I'll hear someone saying, you know, I really wish I was able to do more for the kingdom. Every now and then I'll, I'll maybe get to share the gospel or pray with someone at work and I'll say, those are beautiful moments. Keep seeking those out, keep doing those things, but what about the rest? So let's take, for example, an electrician. What about you running the conduit and pulling that wire and installing those junction boxes that will be hidden to most? What if you did it in light of knowing and seeing and thinking about all the people that will enjoy that building and that space because you did your job with excellence? That counts too. That counts as being a steward. Taking care of the tools for your employer, using them well. What about a customer service rep who's sitting behind a computer or a phone all day and it's call after call and it feels monotonous, right? And, but, but to see it as, hey, I'm a bridge between these people out here, the public and the company that I serve. And why, what if I saw it as being the best bridge I can be to take care of that customer's need? It counts. So what about that word keep? So we're talking about work. And work has that meaning, that sense of like building something. We don't create anything out of nothing. God did that. But we, we create, we build stuff out of his stuff. And we cultivate it. And the word work there has that meaning, that sense. But the word keep builds on that. I'll, I won't spend as much time on that word, but just to contribute to it. Because keep, if work is cultivating and building something and creating something, then keeping is sort of this protecting and preserving uh, and cultivating what has already been the, the, the fruits of our work, if you will. Maybe you think about it in terms of resources. Taking care of and keeping resources. Now, why? Resources are to be used, right? I use resources. Well, what if we saw resources, meaning the things that we have, possession, that includes money, but it's not just money. Uh, all, all the fruits of our labor. What if we saw it as protecting and preserving for the good of all. That I know what I need, but beyond that, I'm stewarding. Because what I need, it all belongs to God anyway. He gives it to me, provides it for me. Think about a, a business owner, an entrepreneur, someone who's really good at generating money and starting a business. And, you know, sometimes that can be sort of looked down on, like, well, those people are just, they like to make money. And, like, well, 
they've got a worldview that includes a creator God, and they see themselves as a steward, then that is a calling in stewardship. You're generating jobs for people to work at in your business. You're making money so that you can serve and care for others. I know some people who are really excellent at making a lot of money, and they're excellent stewards. What if we realize that God, in a sense, is an entrepreneur? He's an he's a investor, in a sense. He created everything, and then he says, take care of it. Use it well. You can, it's, it's yours to use. It belongs to me. I made it, but I'm investing it by sharing it. It provides work, jobs for us to work and keep. What if you could find what you love to do and do it as a steward, okay? But I know there's many of us who feel like, well, I can't, really, I can't really get into that role of doing what I love. What I love to do, I wish I could do, but I can't get there. Well, what if we loved what we've already found and seeing, it as a seeing us as a steward in it, seeing it in a different light? I think this also frees us from being paralyzed by decisions over, like, what job should I do or how should I use my time you know, for, for some here, they've reached the retirement phase, and you think, like, okay, how do I use my time? You don't stop working. <laughs> You've just changed what you're doing. But we can be paralyzed. How do, I, how do I use my time? What should I do? What job should I take if you're, if you're in that phase of life? And we can be freed by all that by just picking something and being a steward of it. Just getting out there and doing something. If we see ourselves as a steward and we see the fruit of our work as things we are stewarding rather than things that justify our own existence, then we, we actually can find contentment in what we do and what we have. But how do we get there? How do we get this perspective? Well, I would say that we don't get it in the sense of, I got to go grab it because it's given. <laughs> if our lives are spent in neurotic fabrication of our own self-worth we'll never get there because it's a moving target like Harold Abrams said I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing but what if that perspective is given to us which gives us to this next point that we'll get through briefly here the heart of a steward I know it's one verse we're we're, we're getting there the heart of a steward what's at the heart of a steward rest Rest. There's something really interesting here. When you have one verse, you can do a little deeper dive into the words. And I dove back into the, the Hebrew a little bit. I've forgotten more Hebrew than I, than I learned a long time ago. But I use the study tools here. And the, the word, the verb actually, where the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. The meaning behind that, the Hebrew word, has the sense of rest. And, and not merely uh, just like I rested that book. The, the, I rested the Bible here on the pulpit. That, that word's actually used earlier in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man there. This is, also, this is translated oftentimes as rest. So, is uh, Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made, the heaven, made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Same Hebrew word. Exodus 33, 14, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Same Hebrew word. 
Psalm 95, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Same Hebrew word. That Psalm 95 is, is quoted in Hebrews chapter 4, where it, take, it goes from there, the writer of Hebrews goes on from there to say, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. God didn't say, work and keep that garden, so then you'll have rest, so then you'll have place with me, so then you'll have purpose if you get it right. He said, no, rest you in the garden. That's rest, contentment, a place with me, relationship, delight even with me. So out of that place of restedness, work and keep. But our hearts go astray. Like our first parents, we inherit the same way of thinking. They just sort of thought, well, maybe we can do this better on our own. Maybe we can figure this out on our own better, right? They, they listened to the serpent. They rebelled against God and said, thanks for trying, God, but we'll do this on our own. And therefore, we, we as human beings transition from stewards to thinking we're owners, and the problem with being an owner is that the onus is on you to get it right, to establish worth, to make a name for yourself. And there's no rest in that because it's impossible to attain what was never meant to be yours. So it's a restless life. And it's a moving target, this moving target of, of comparative worth. Who knows who Johann Blake is? If you follow track and field at all, you might know that name. He's the second fastest man in the world by a tenth of a second under Usain Bolt. How would you like to be the second fastest man in the world? For me, that'd be pretty awesome because <laughs> I'm way down the list. But like, how, how much is enough then? Like, Is it enough that he's second fastest? You may be satisfied with that. I don't know. I've never, never asked him. What about uh, Mr. Chrysler who built the Chrysler building in New York? Uh, by, he said it's a monument to me, by the way, so that's telling. He built it to be the tallest building in the world, and it was the tallest building in the world for 11 months. <laughs> now it's the 65th tallest building in the world. You know, see what I'm saying? Like, how, how much is enough to be at rest, to say, I'm done, I'm, I feel accomplished, I feel like I have purpose it's this moving target of comparative worth. Rather than that, God says, okay, you've tried to establish your own worth. You've gotten out there and you've tried it. How's it going? How's it going for you? How about we get back, back to what I originally had for you to settle you in a place of rest and contentment with me? You've settled for lesser things. It's interesting. It's ironic that we strive for, for something great in purpose and worth and value. And actually in doing that, we've settled for less. Because it never satisfies. It's a wearisome task. And he sa so God says this. He says, how about I give you rest first? How about we go there? How about we go back to that? And then you can take up again my easy yoke. Because it's not inactivity. How about then you take up my easy yoke, my yoke of being my steward 
with one whose heart is gentle and lowly. A place, no, 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 a person where your very soul can find rest from all the weariness or burdens of trying to find your own purpose. Sounds familiar. It was our assurance of grace earlier, Matthew 11, Jesus' words. Are you at rest? It's a daily struggle, by the way, to, to find our place of rest in the Lord, to be able to work out of that place, to be a steward out of that posture of being at rest, to be able to steward our possessions out of a place of rest. But if we can rest, I think it changes everything, and it challenges everything to say, do I need this? Do I need this to be somebody? No, no, I already am. In Christ, I already am. I'm secure there. This week, I found myself awake during the night one night, just thinking about all that I had to do, and I couldn't sleep, and then I realized I need to hear this sermon. <laughs> I need to hear this sermon because I need to learn more and more how to rest in Jesus and to live out of that place so that I can be a faithful steward and not need to do a great job for my own sake, but need to do it to know that I'm being a steward and I'm freed I'm freed in that place can we delight can we rest and can we delight in all types of work whatever you have before you can you find delight in it as a steward and maybe most of all maybe the biggest thing is do you know the owner you see, the other interesting thing about this verse is that it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and keep it. Lord God, the Lord, that word behind that is God's personal name, Yahweh. Some of you forgot it's personal. He's not a distant deity who's giving orders to his servants. Say, do this, work my garden, take care of my stuff. He's personal, relational God. And for him, it's personal. And it's us knowing that he's a good God who cares for his stewards. In fact, cares so much for them that he's willing to come after them when they are unfaithful and go astray like us. And bring us back to that place of rest and contentment now in Christ. I'll close with this. One of my uh, favorite novels is Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. The novel's about Jaber Crow, the main character, who stands really in stark contrast to some of these folks that I described at the beginning, Harold Abrams and Madonna and Rocky and Robert Downey Jr. and Tom Brady. He's a man who finds rest in his place and purpose. He's from, this is a fictional story about a fictional place in a small town in Kentucky. He loses his parents in childhood and is moved in with some relatives and a few years later, those relatives die, and so he's moved on to an orphanage for a time. And As he grows into adulthood, he, he moves out of the orphanage, leaves that, and he begins to dream about being a minister. Along the way, he's taken in by a barber, and the barber teaches Jaber how to cut hair. After a time of being with this guy, Jaber decides he wants to go back home to his hometown, he missed it. He wants to go back. He feels like he knows people there, so he goes back. And, and he finds people there that do know him and remember him, and they take him in. And pretty quickly, 
he realizes that this little town is in need of a barber. <laughs> and so Jaber, instead of chasing his dreams of being a minister, settles in as the town barber, where he works and keeps the town's hair for the next 50 years. How about that for settled contentment in a place and a purpose? In a small town, cutting hair for 50 years. <laughs> Besides cutting hair, he finds that his shop is the place of community. The men of the community come and go, sharing stories and memories. And Jaber finds that he's not merely the steward of the town's hair, but also of its communal memories and stories. And it goes on here, this is someone writing about the novel that I just ran across in an article. Uh, to be sure, his life from this point on is full of suffering, loss, pain, doubt, loneliness, among other types of hardship, which is true. The story is hard at times. The transformation of his life is not the loss of such things, but the discernment to see these hardships as part of his story. Part of what it means to be a relational and local being. A steward is a relational and local being. Called to a place, called to a purpose. This is Jaber's words in the novel. I could no longer imagine a life for myself beyond Port William, which is the name of the town. I thought I will have to share the fate of this place. Whatever happens to Port William must happen to me. The perspective of a steward. I'm a part of this. I'm a piece in this puzzle. But it's a much grander story than me. It's not about me. It's about me being faithful in this place and in my purpose. I've been given a place. You've been given a place. We've been given purpose. We share in the fate of this place as God's good creation in all of his things. May we be faithful, even in the hard, even in the mundane and ordinary and monotonous things. This place doesn't belong to me or you. Have you found rest in the owner who gives purpose and contentment and delight? even in the pain of this world. He wants your heart, and he wants us to steward the rest. Father, thank you for speaking. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for providing purpose for us, Lord. You've not left us to, to be stuck in an endless loop of trying to establish our own identity or worth or place in this world that you've given it given us a good place to be because you are good and you've redeemed us in your son Jesus you came into this world that was broken that is broken to bring us back to a place of contentment and rest in relationship with you may we may we be able to rest in that and work and steward out of that place Lord, we pray these things for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.